So sometimes I have ideas, and my wife is just a good sport. Anybody like that? Nobody? Okay, just me. Uh, I, I've seen that video a bunch of times, and I just, for some reason, heard uh, 26 years sounds like forever. And I know a lot of you folks here have been married longer than 26, and that's just, I don't know why. That's just interesting. So if you haven't seen that video before, we've been pushing that out for a while, and maybe you've seen it on the website or whatnot, but, but Emily, my wife, and I, we started this program a little while ago. We're calling uh, Funner Marriage, and we know funner's not a word, but, uh, but marriages should be fun. Uh, we, we've seen over the years that, that sometimes these, these, um, these things that are oriented towards marriage uses words like work, effort, you really got to dig in. And I, I read that and I go, ah. right? So we, that's cool, that's fine, but we think that um, marriage is actually designed to be fun and spending a little extra effort on your marriage is a really fun thing. So anyways, that's, that's kind of what we put together. If you're interested in being part of those, uh, you can uh, find out info on the website, on the app, um, you can check it out. Um, our, we do these in retreat style, a weekend retreat, or you can do a four-week, uh, like like a, a Sunday or whatever, four Sundays in a row or whatever this thing is. And so um, uh, we got a, they're all listed on the website through the app, whatnot. Uh, the one for February is full, but there is an interest list there that you can put your name on. If you put your name on the interest list, then you'll be the first one to find out before we go live with the dates, what the next date is. So if that's something that you're interested in, that makes sense. The reason that I start with all of that, and it makes some sense because our world, Emily and I's world right now, is just really wrapped around this concept of marriage. So it makes sense that I get to conclude our series, this, this thing that we've called God's Design, Trusting God's Blueprint for Our Lives, that I get to conclude this series with some thoughts on marriage and singleness. You see where this is going, right? It makes some sense that we'd get to do that. And so uh, I just want to start with some statistics on marriage in general. Now, if you're not into statistics, it's fine. Just hang in there with me. And if you're not married... Hang in there with me, because while uh, uh, marriage is uh, the, I don't know the right word to put in here, the, the marriage is sort of the typical anticipated uh, regular path, it's not the only path. So, so just hang in there with me, we're going to talk to both groups, but I just want to start with some stats on marriage in general. They say 78% of American adults are married, and these are all, you can source these, it's in the notes somewhere, you can let me know if you want to find out where we found these from, but 84% of born-again Christians are married, and 70% of married couples say the determining factor in whether they feel satisfied with sex, romance, and passion is the quality of their friendship with each other. It's powerful. Overall, marriage is, is kind of this typical, regular, anticipated pathway, but again, not the only pathway. Here's some statistics on marriage and the impact marriage has on children. And this is uh, taken from children that are in a mom and dad married home. They are two times less likely to drop out of high school, less likely to go to prison. One in five kids from a fatherless home end up incarcerated. Marriages reduce the probability of child poverty by 80%. If you're not into statistics, when you hit a number like 80%, it's huge in the statistics world, right? And it reduced child poverty by 80%. Uh, they're less likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They're less likely to have behavioral problems. Two times less likely to suffer from obesity. Seven times less likely to get pregnant as a teen. And less likely to face abuse and neglect. What's the overall there? Is that marriage gives your kids the best chance at a happy healthy, well-adjusted life. 
Here's the impact of marriage on men and women. Start with men. Men, 20% uh, higher chance of surviving cancer. Women have about 19% higher chance of surviving cancer if they're married. Men have a 46% lower risk of heart disease death, lower levels of depression, reduced incidence of Alzheimer's disease, improved blood sugar levels, and as in the studies mentioned above, lower levels of cancer and better overall rates after diagnosis. So men, if you want to be healthier and happier, get married. Now, can we just be honest for a minute? A lot of that probably has to do with a man having somebody in his regular space saying, go to the doctor. <laughs> I don't know that there's how much magical there is in that, but I got to admit, I think some of that, because guys sometimes, yeah, anyways. Uh, for women, married women are at a lower risk for domestic violence than women in cohabitating or dating relationships. Being married changes people's lifestyles and habits in ways that are personally and socially beneficial. Marriage is the seedbed of pro-social behavior. Marriage generates social capital. Social bonds created through marriage yields benefits not only for the family, but for others as well, including the larger society. So overall, marriage is a benefit to social life and often is the solution to a number of social problems. Here's the point. Married people have mental, physical, and emotional health benefits. And their kids have even more benefits. Kids were designed to be raised in a two-parent home. Almost like God knew what he was doing when he put marriage into the picture. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. Single moms and dads, uh, they, they are doing, uh, across the board, a phenomenal job. It is incredibly difficult to raise a family as a single parent. And single parents, if you're here, I don't want you to hear me say that somehow um, your kids are going to be messed up or any, like you're doing a great job is my guess, but you know how difficult it is when you take half of the parenting component away and how difficult that is. Uh, Emily and I talk about this all the time. She was raised by a single mom who raised three kids, uh, her, a twin brother, and a younger sister, and she did that from age uh, f four and eight. She, she, it was not her choice. It wasn't her desire to be a single mom. Uh, it was for them the absolute right decision, knowing the story. And she will tell you how difficult it was to raise kids as a single parent. I'm preaching to the choir if you're a single parent. This is no surprise to you. And all those kids would say how difficult it was to be raised in a single parent home. So single parents, man, kudos to you. Keep doing what you're doing. I, I joke a lot. I say that we only had two kids because when we ran out of adults in the relationship, then we were done. Right? I only half joke about that. Raising kids is difficult. Doing it as a married couple is the best way. And single parents, like you are just taking a double load on there's this organization called Authentic Manhood. It's a Christian organization. They put out all kinds of uh, good material and studies for guys in particular. But they suggest that there's three types of marriage. Number one is the top-down marriage, what they call the top-down. Right, this is the king or dictator model. It usually centers around his needs, and it can feel like there's a winner and a loser in the situation. This is the stereotypical marriage, although maybe not necessarily accurate, from the past. It's often filled with chauvinism, male domination, etc. This is not a biblical picture of marriage, but it's certainly something that seems to be out there sometimes. Second type of marriage they identify, it's called identical marriage. Identical is this idea that everything is 50-50, that it's probably an overcorrection of the top-down model. 
right? This is the stereotypical marriage that our contemporary culture pushes, where they say there's no differences between men and women. They're exactly the same, and everything is just 50-50. And I don't think that that's a biblical picture of marriage. Authentic manhood would say it's the third type that's the biblical picture. It's this side-by-side marriage. It emphasizes equality and fairness, but it also leaves room for leadership and God's intended differences between husbands and wives. This is the marriage that the Bible describes and leads to healthy, happy relationships. Top-down and identical, not biblical portraits of marriage, and I would suggest that that they are really uh, satanic strategies to break the picture of marriage that God wants for us. You see, at the, at the end of the day, marriage is a picture of the gospel between Jesus and his people. It has less to do with us and our marriage and so much more to do with who God is and his people. So anything the devil can do to break that picture, to mar that picture, to make that a bad picture, he's gonna do. Authentic manhood goes on and they affirm four truths about marriage. They say these things are absolutely true. They say, number one, marriage was God's idea. Number two, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Number three, God created a helper suitable for him. And number four, God intended a man to leave his parents' home and cling to his wife. Now, all of this setup is free. It's not even where we're, well, it's kind of where we're going today, but we're not even digging in yet. And honestly, if you tuned out right now and just spent time processing those four things, you'd probably have plenty to be thinking about and working on. When a husband is leaning into his God-designed wiring to be intentional, engaged, and responsible, and the wife is leaning into her God-designed wiring to be collaborative and compassionate with that extra measure of trust, like, Your marriage becomes this beautiful picture of the gospel. It's like these two components form this one whole picture. In their book called Making Happy, The Art and Science of a Happy Marriage by researchers and psychologist Les and Leslie Parrott, they say this. They say, that's why the most important thing any couple can do to ensure happiness together is to build a rock-solid relationship. Marriage was not created to make you happy. That's a gigantic myth. And if you chase that, it's like chasing the wind. You'll never find that. In reality, it really isn't about you very much. Every wedding that I do, I get to share this little truth, which kind of blows the wedding a little bit because it is all about that bride and that groom. Let's be honest, it's all about the bride on that day. And it's beautiful. We talk about that. We talk about love. But I get this little part where I say in the end of the, it's really less about you guys and so much more about Jesus and his people, so much more about Christ and his kingdom. When we make marriage primarily about us and our happiness and our fulfillment, we're destined to lose. But when we recognize that marriage is really about Christ and his kingdom, we reap the side benefits of this amazing relationship. When we look at the Old Testament, it's almost impossible to find a book in the Old Testament that doesn't somehow describe God's relationship with his people as a marriage. Over and over again, God's people are described as the bride of Jesus, and God is is described as a husband. For example, in Jeremiah, it says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. In Isaiah 54, it says it this way. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. 
The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. The Old Testament is full of this picture of God and his people being described in the marriage relationship. There's this book in the Old Testament, nobody ever reads it, it's called Hosea. If you've read it, you know where I'm going with this. This, this book of Hosea is the story of this prophet, this guy whose job was to speak for God. God tells him to go and marry this woman named Gomer. Just get past the names, they're weird, I know. But, but to go and marry this gal named Gomer, and her job was a prostitute. So he says, go and marry her. And so he does. He goes and he brings her back and he marries her. And then the rest of the book is really her leaving him and going back to the brothel. And then God tells him to go back out, buy her back, bring her back. And this happens three and four and five times. And this whole picture is this picture of how God's people treated God. I mean, it's crazy. It is, it's like sick. It's gross. It's, it's wrong. If you read it as a guy, you're like, I'm doing that. If you read it as a woman, you're like, what's wrong with her? Like, it is this... And the whole picture is to make us feel that sense of how wrong this is in terms of how God's people treated God over and over again, going whoring after lesser husbands. This picture is ripe in the Old Testament of God being described as a husband and his people being described as a, as a bride in this marriage relationship. Well, if we slide over to the New Testament, uh, the book of Ephesians, there's an author by the name of Paul. He makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. He, he spent the whole chapter, we'll read it in a minute, parts of it. He spent really the whole chapter talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife and what that looks like. And at the end, he gets down to the bottom and he goes, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So after talking about these very specific roles for husbands and these very specific roles for wives, he gets to the end and he says, I know this is a little complex, but I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Because there is this picture of marriage between a man and a woman is this, is this clear picture of the gospel, the good news of how Jesus loves his people. So with, with the rest of the time we have left, the next 20 minutes, I want to look at three marriages in the scripture that we've got to hang this theology on. There is, there's something happening here, and, and there's three pivotal, I mean, there's lots of marriages in the Bible, but, but there's three pivotal marriages that we hang all of this on that really paints this picture, and the first marriage that we see is in the book of Genesis. So if you have the app, if you have your Bible, we want you in Genesis chapter one. Um, I, I keep forgetting to mention this, but if I, if I cause churn or problems or you have questions, there's a little button at the bottom. You can submit some questions that I'll try to dodge tomorrow on the podcast. It'll be great. But, um, but feel free to do that. But Genesis chapter 1, the very first marriage starts in verse, we'll start in verse 26. God has just created everything from nothing, and we get to 26, and it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And God said, I give you every seed bearing a plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree has fruit with seed in it and they will be yours for food. This is the big picture 
Big picture creation of man and woman in a minute, it's gonna like zero in, the camera's gonna kind of tighten up and they're gonna talk about it again and get down to the details. But the big picture there is that God created man and woman. Did you catch that? They're both created in his likeness. Don't miss that. Men created in the likeness of God. Women created in the likeness of God. So all the wiring that is ours is also found in God. For example, man, we've said the manhood wiring of being intentional, engaged, and responsible, like that flows from who God is. And women, that wiring of being collaborative, compassionate, trust, that flows from God's character and his nature. Like all of that wiring is, is found in God as God created men and women and he put those into us. If we jump over to chapter two, then down to verse 18, it's that, it's that narrowing. We saw the big picture of how that happened and we get down to a narrowing in verse 18. God had created everything else and at the end of everything else, at the end of, of every animal, at the end of every tree, at the end of every light, at the end of every sun, he said, it's good. It's like God created light and he's like, that's really good. And then God created trees. He's like, man, that's even better. And then he created like, I don't even know, duck-billed platypus. And he was like, that's amazing. That's so good. And then it says in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground of all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Did you see what happened in that little moment? God creates this wedding ceremony. And it starts by God bringing Adam to the animal. He's like, hey, name them. And so Adam's naming these animals. Could you imagine if weddings did that today? Like you showed up in your nice clothes and stuff. There's like animals up in front. And the first job the dude had to do was start naming animals. So Adam's naming these animals. And there's a purpose to this ceremony because Adam realizes there's nothing like him in all of creation. There's nothing that's, that's right for him. There's nothing that's fit for him. There's, there's nothing that gets him going. In all of creation, he likes these animals. He's naming them. It's cool. But man, there's just nothing like him. And so then God causes him to fall asleep. And, and from that, he creates woman. And I don't know if you caught this, but God literally brings her to him. He literally walks her down the aisle to Adam. And he says, hey, look. And then, and then Adam says this thing about bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's really this promise that he makes to her. There's this commitment, this, this covenant that he makes with her that he's gonna be there forever, that that relationship is gonna be forever, this new relationship. And, and then it ends in a really weird way in verse 24. It says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Here's the weird part. Adam and Eve didn't have a mom or a dad. Did you catch that? 
It's almost as if God sets this up for the rest of time. This very first marriage, there is a replication that's gonna happen for every marriage after that. That the family of origin we once had, and there's gonna be an end to that. And there's gonna be a bonding of a new family. A new family. There's gonna be a new thing that's happening and they're supposed to lean into that. Matter of fact, if you caught it, there's a purpose to this wedding. There's a purpose to this marriage. One is that it completes man. That's absolutely true. But the second one, and it's pretty clear, is that it was their job to be partners to fill and rule creation. God says to them, like, be fruitful and multiply. You know, that's a very biblical way of saying, that's cool that God set that. He could have done that any way he wanted to. God could have said, yeah, on the second Thursday of every month, babies are gonna sprout up from the chrysanthemums. I don't know, like however he wanted to. There's like little baby seeds, and if you rub them like a lamp, then, you know, they pop up. Into, he could have done it any way he wanted to. But he said, no, there's going to be this, this relationship of two partners, and, and part of their job is going to be to fill earth. And then to rule it, to enjoy it, to appreciate it, to have fun with it, to make this your home. The very first marriage was designed to develop and fill the creation that God made. If we jump over to the last marriage, we'll come back in a minute uh, to do the, the middle one, but if we jump all the way to the last marriage, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, starting in verse six, this is what it says. It says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So interesting to me that at the end of all of this, at the end of this entire Christian experience, the very end of our sanctification, when everything is said and done, when Jesus has returned, when he's recreated everything for us to live with him forever, that is pictured as a wedding. I mean, God could have pictured it as a birthday, as a retirement party, as maybe finishing the race and the party that happens at the end of a marathon or, or winning a contest and, and, and getting a medal. Or he could, have, he could have pictured it as bar mitzvah. That would have been very Jewish and communicated to the group that was originally listening. But he doesn't. He compares it to a wedding. There's something important, vitally important to this picture of marriage that isn't as much about us. It has so much more to do with Jesus and his people. Well, the second marriage, the one that we kind of skipped for a second, and really there's lots of marriages in between there, but the, the one that we want to cap on because I think it really brings shape and light to our marriages today is found in Ephesians chapter five. We've spent some time in this verses over the last number of weeks, and that's okay. We're gonna spend a little more time here. Chapter five, start in verse 25. It says this. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? It's no accident that it's thrown in there. It says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love their wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's like the clearest verbalization in all of Scripture of the redemptive marriage between Jesus and his people. Uh, all over the church is referred to as the bride of Christ hundreds of times. And that's not an accident. That's not just some poetic uh, uh, wording. That, that is the picture and the clearest picture of what it should look like between Jesus and his people, what we call the gospel. This picture that's used between Jesus and the church is that of marriage. The church is painted as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the groom. If we go back a couple chapters in Ephesians to chapter one, verse 22, it says this about Jesus. It says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This, this idea that the church, the, the bride of Christ, is the fullness of Jesus. Said another way, we might say like all of Jesus is played out in the church. Paul uses the word body here. It is the physical, visible manifestation of Jesus. The church is that. We're, we're not talking about the building or the organization. We're talking about the, the relational connections that we would call church. This idea that the totality of Jesus comes through this relationship of the church, his body, his bride. We could just kind of, uh, for a minute, see if I can make this make sense. Over in Philippians chapter two, it describes Jesus in a really unique way. And I want us to see it because I think it relates to marriage. It says in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one, and for you theologians out there, it's called the great kenosis passage. It's about Jesus, how he emptied himself of some things in order to be who he was for us. So it says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Describes who Jesus is in that relationship between he and God and us. And then the shift here in terms of how we think about relationships, but imagine a marriage built on that base right there. Imagine what that could look like, how powerful that could be. If, if I rewrote this with just the focus of marriage being in there, it might sound like this. In your marriage relationship, mirror Jesus's attitude. That while you are equals, neither feel the need, need to claim equality for their own benefit or to get their own way. While you have unique roles and responsibilities, neither thinks of themselves as more important. 
Instead, spouses are able to think of themselves as second and serve the other with joy. Empathy rules the home, and humility is close to follow. A marriage filled with empathy and humility makes dying to self an easy task and creates a relationship that is exalted above others that is filled with love and hope and peace and brings glory to God as the creator of marriage. Man, if we just worked that into our fabric, like two words, game changer. As our marriages model and picture this relationship that Jesus has with his people. It's this great book, it's called Marriage, It's Foundation, Theology, and Mission in a Changing World. It says this, it says, God began creation with a marriage and he redeemed fallen creation through a marriage and he will fully consummate his unfathomable love for us in an everlasting marriage. These three marriages that we see through scripture are pictures for us. It goes on to say, our culture desperately needs to see examples of Christ-like love in Christian marriages. No calling is greater for the married Christian than to be faithful and to die to self for the good of his or her spouse. This is very counter to our culture. Our culture says that you should be fulfilled in your marriage. But Jesus says, like, you're in it to fulfill the other person. In the same way that Jesus wasn't in this to fulfill himself, but really to do what's best for us. See, marriage, and I'm talking about your marriage, not marriage in general or marriage as the idea or, or the person next to you. I'm talking about your marriage, the person that you're holding hands with right now, that you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with, that you've got your arm around, that you guys have been passing notes back and forth a little bit, like that person right there. Your marriage, literally, your relationship with your spouse is a picture of the gospel of Jesus and his people. If you strive to love your spouse with all your ability, you paint a good picture because that's the way Jesus loves his people. If you speak only the highest of your spouse and affirm them in anything you can, you paint a good picture because that's how Jesus thinks and sees us as his people. Like if you hang in there with your marriage, even when it gets junky and difficult and somewhat ugly and maybe even not satisfying, well, you see where we're going, right? Because Jesus hangs in there with me when it's often junky and ugly, and I don't know how much satisfaction I give to Jesus. But, but thank God I'm not responsible for the sin. Thank God he's died for that and paid for that. And our marriages, man, if they model and hang in there and are great pictures of the gospel, how fantastic. Your marriage might be the only picture of the gospel that some people see. I want to make it the most beautiful one possible. In that book called Marriage, it says, one of the reasons marriages struggle today is that many in the world never see the sacred dimensions in marriage. Marriage is just considered to be a product of a merely human act and should be subject to the whims and foibles of human life. But it's not. Marriage is so much more than just this thing we do for the tax write-off or because I don't want to be alone or because it's really healthy to have kids who are a product of a marriage. Those things are, tr are true, but so much more than that, marriage. All right, so, so spent a lot of time talking about marriage, and I, I think it warrants it. It, it, it. It's good. It's the sort of the trajectory for the majority of people if we just look at the statistics. But I wanna spend the, the last few minutes we have together talking about this concept that we call singleness, whether it's still or again. You know what I mean by that? I'm still single or I'm single. Again, I wanna talk about 
singleness, there's one passage that I think is incredibly clear and helpful. We could go to lots of places, but this is where I like to go because I think it just is the clearest place as, as the Bible speaks into this concept of singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to jump around a little bit. The whole chapter is really full of great advice. We'll jump around a little bit for time this morning, but, but we want to start in verse 8. Paul, the author of this, says, Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Jump over to verse 17. It says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them, this is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. Jump over to verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is uh, concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in right way in undivided devotion to the Lord we drop down to verse 39 and it says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. He, he, here's all I wanna say about this concept of being single is that uh, being unmarried or single really does give a unique ability for a season to have much more focus on living the life that God would have you live in this unique and dedicated way. We might use the phrase single-focused. Paul says, like, for married people, like, they, they have this split allegiance. Yeah, yeah, they love the Lord and they want to serve God, but there's this person that they're committed to, and so it just gets more complex. I, I did youth ministry before I was married, and then I did youth ministry after I was married, and I can just tell you, it is so much easier to pick up and jump on a plane and go overseas on a missions trip when you're not married, and when you bring this other person into the world, you're like, okay, that just got complicated. Then you have kids and it gets crazy complicated. But, but the idea being when you are single, you have this unique opportunity, this unique season where your money, your time, your energy, really basically everything is up to you to spend it the way you want to spend it. I don't know if this is a big secret, but when you get married, you don't get to do that anymore. There's this other person who has an opinion on that. And that's a really good, fun, healthy thing. But as a single, like you don't have that same restriction. That's not the right word. Binding, that's a terrible word. You know where I'm trying to go with that. You don't have that same reality. See, see I think it really is a waste for you guys that are single here. I want you to hear me. It's a waste to spend that season striving for the thing you don't have striving for this marriage relationship. I'm not gonna lie, I love being married. But, but if God has for you this unique season, this unique opportunity to be single for a specific purpose for a time, maybe short time, maybe long time, don't waste it by wanting the thing over there. Like, like I'd encourage you, lean into asking God, like, why do you have me single for this season? And what is it I can be doing, should be doing, get to watch you do in me? Like, have that conversation with God. Instead of striving, churning, or passionately pursuing marriage, 
man, I'd encourage you to strive and passionately pursue what Jesus has for you in this season, whether it's still single or single again. Like you have the option to choose that path. Paul seems to say it's actually a better path in some ways. Not that there's anything wrong with marriage, but man, singleness is really a unique opportunity. And and I get it. I I get it, singles. Sometimes it doesn't feel like an opportunity (laughs) because our culture, our world, sometimes the church culture is bad at this. Somehow make it seem like if you're single, you're this oddity or a pariah. Well, singleness is not an oddity or a pariah. It really is a unique opportunity for a season where you get to do some things that if, if marriage is something for you down the line or other married couples don't get to do it in that same way. There's nothing wrong for looking for a spouse. But as long as you're in that season of singleness, man, if I could just encourage you, lean into that. Don't rush into a relationship or onto the next relationship. Lean into what God wants to do in you and through you and with you for as long as God has you there. Don't miss what he's cooking. Lean into that. The, the best advice that I ever heard, for whatever it's worth, uh, for, for single folks, this was back in my college days, which was 180 years ago, um, it was, uh, it's, this, it's this picture of a marathon. He says, single people, like, I'm looking at you, single people hear me, it, life is a marathon. And, you're, and you start running that marathon and you're, you're chasing Jesus. Jesus is the finish line. That's what your eyes are focused on. Not all the racers around you and stuff because when that gun goes off, like you're moving and you're just, you're just, you're just single focus. You're just, so you're running, right? So, marriage, so, so this whole life, it's really, you're just running and you're chasing Jesus. And you get past that first mile. About that first mile is when your breathing starts to regulate. First mile, you feel like you're gonna die. Then after that first mile, your breathing starts to regulate a little bit. And you're like, okay, all right, this isn't horrible. Maybe I'm not completely insane for signing up for this. And you're running, you're running, you're going 26 miles. That's your marathon, right? It's a long haul here. It's not short. It's not a 5K. It's a marathon. So you're running. So you're a couple miles in and your legs start kind of loosening up a little. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, I probably shouldn't have had that for breakfast, but I'm doing all right now. I'm gonna keep running. You keep running, you keep, and you're chasing Jesus. And you're chasing Jesus. You get to mile eight or nine or something like that, man. You're feeling good. You're like, man, I just, I'm loving it. And the sky's blue and, or snowy or what. And you're running and you're chasing Jesus. And I don't know, maybe you hit mile 10 or something like that, and you're like, you know what, it'd be kind of fun to run with someone else. So as you're running and chasing Jesus and your focus is this way, maybe you just kind of glance next to you. And you just get a little quick glance. You're still running, though, because you got your stride going and you're figuring this out. And you're like, this is really, man, I'm glad I did this. I'm feeling good. My lungs are working. My legs are working. Just, your arms are pumping. You're just digging it. But you notice there, there's a couple people. You're like, oh, they're cute. <laughs> Oh, and that's it though, because your focus is Jesus. And you hit mile 11, maybe mile mile 12, I don't know. You're somewhere, you're halfway through. You're like, all right, I hit the wall, I'm past that. I think I can do this, you know, and you're moving. And you've noticed that that person that you thought was kind of cute, like they're kind of keeping tempo with you. They're running about the same speed, about the same stride length. They're kind of in it. They're over there still because they're chasing Jesus and you're chasing Jesus. You're not really worried about them, but you've kind of noticed that a couple of times, like, like they're, they're okay, they're kind of there, they're kind of there, and you're just chasing Jesus, and you maybe go to mile 13 or mile 14, and mile 14, you kind of look over, and you're like, that person has been with me for a few miles. This is, I, oh, they're cute, you know. And I, I don't know, they're chasing Jesus, I'm chasing Jesus, kind of cool. So you look over, and you go, hey, you want to run together? And they go, yeah. And so then you get shoulder to shoulder, and you're chasing Jesus together. You're not chasing the person or the people or what the other runners are telling you to do. Like, it's your marathon, man. You're, you're running to Jesus. And over time, you see someone else who has run in that same direction, and you ask him to do it with you. 
See, see, marriage and singleness are both opportunities to live in ways focused on Jesus and glorify God to a watching world. As a single, I would suggest you chase Jesus. Don't miss the opportunity that God has given you for this season. As a married couple, I'd suggest that your marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus and his people. Make the best and most accurate picture possible. See, see the truth is when God is your desire, you can trust his design, whether you're single or married. This applies to our entire series, right? As an engaged, intentional, responsible man or collaborative, compassionate, trusting woman, like whatever your role in the church as a, as a leader or participant, and especially your station in life as a single or a married, God has designed you and knows how that design best functions. Lean into that. Stop striving to be something you're not designed to be. Because when God is your desire, we can truly trust his design. Amen.